Uh, Open your Bibles up to John chapter 9. John chapter 9 is where we will be today. We're continuing through our sermon series called Life with Jesus. And just like it has been every week, our goal for today is that you would personally experience life with Jesus today in our time right now. That you would connect with Jesus in such a way that the natural outflow as we go from here today is for you to share that experience of life with Jesus with other people, that other people would experience what life with Jesus is like when they experience you. That's that's our hope for today and for this sermon series. We're going to be in John 9, verses 13 to 41, which sounds like a lot. It sounds scary. Stick with me. We'll be all right, okay? We're going to make it through together. Let me pray for us as we jump in. Father God, We thank you so much for this opportunity to come together to worship you. We thank you for for this opportunity to, to sing to you, to talk with one another. All these ways that you have made us to glorify you, Lord. We thank you that worship doesn't stop when the music stops, like like Emily said. Uh, We ask that you would meet us here in our time together today, that you would uh, be present with us as we open up your word, that you would uh, open our ears to hear you clearly and open our eyes to see you for who you are. Lord, we know this is a a great thing to open up your scripture and to enter into your story. So we say, speak, because your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're going to start off today with a test. I know I didn't, it's a pop quiz. I didn't give you any, any like forewarning of this, and I'm sorry about that. But if it helps, it's a group test. So we either all all pass together or we all fail together, okay? I'm, I'm not going to, like, give everybody grades, uh, but just, just, just stick with me on this, all right? I'll give you even a warm-up question, all right? Here's the warm-up just to kind of get the juices flowing, all right? Here's question number one. What is this? Yes! You guys are so good. Okay, look, this is going to be fine. We're all going to be fine. Uh, technically, it's a taco. It does come from Taco Bell. So if you consider that to be tacos, like, it's a taco. But it's not, it's not like a real taco. That's a Taco Bell taco. But, uh, but I'll give it to you. It's the first question. All right, it's going to get a little harder now, okay? Second question, what is this? Ooh. Someone said real tacos. I wish so much that were true. These are tacos from the little place across the street from Sarah and my first apartment when we lived in California. It's called Taco King. They proudly displayed their C-plus health rating right there on the window. They're tacos, but like maybe not the world's great. Okay, question number three. You guys are doing really good. What are these? I know, I know, y'all are skeptical. This is going to preach in a minute if you let it. Hold on. These are, these are tacos for actually from the taco truck in Gig Harbor over there on Purdy. Really good. Highly recommended. All right, last question, or no, second to last question. What is this? Barbecue. That's the real taco. That's, that's, I heard tacos back here. That's a taco from a street vendor somewhere in Mexico City. That is the real taco right there. Okay. Last, this is the last question. Which taco would you rather have? Number one, two, three, or four. Just, just put up a finger. One, two, three, or four. What taco do you want to have? If you answered number one, I'll pray for you. You need to get right with the Lord a little bit, and then we'll, we'll be able to continue. But 
all right, all right, three or four are the acceptable answers here. Uh, maybe I should pray for you if you, ordered, if you said number two. That, that's, the, that's the sketchiest one. I know at this point you're like, what is going on? Why did I come to church today to talk about tacos? Like, was Drew just really hungry when he was writing this sermon? Like, what is happening? Here's, here's the point. There's tacos, right? And then there's tacos. Do you know what I mean? Like, like there's Taco Bell, but then there's like the street tacos from Mexico City, right? Like, like there's a like a shadow taco. That's like a lesser form, and it kind of points us to the greater reality of, of what God intended tacos to be. Are you following me? Uh, this was supposed to preach a little better than this, all right? Here's what I'm getting at. John is full of these types of truths. The book of John is constantly telling us, like, there's belief, and then there's belief, right? Like, like there's people who can hear, but then there's people who hear, Right? There's light, and then there's light. There's people who see, and then there's people who see. John is kind of constantly playing around with these categories of lesser, lighter things, pointing us to deeper and greater realities. And as we look today at John chapter 9, we see another one. John is telling us in chapter 9 that there's blindness, and then there's blindness. One of them is a little bit more familiar to us. Maybe you've, you've seen or experienced this kind of blindness somehow, and, and the other isn't talked about so often. It, it maybe feels a little bit more mysterious. One gets a little bit more publicity than the other one. But there is a, a deeper reality of blindness that many people are too blind to ever consider. John wants us to pick up the story from the first part of chapter 9 that we looked at last week about a a physical blindness in order to invite us to consider the deeper reality of what it really means to be blind in the world. If you remember last week, we looked at the first 12 verses of this chapter. We saw that Jesus passed by a man in the city of Jerusalem, who had been blind from birth. Now, that's an important part. He was blind from birth. He'd been blind his entire life. He'd never seen a thing. And Jesus saw him and stopped, and he knelt down next to the man. Do you remember what he did? He, he spat in some dirt, and he mixed it together to make mud. And then he spread it on the man's eyes and told him to go wash. Told him to go to the pool and wash it off. And we saw that the man did that. He, he went to the pool and he washed, and it said he came back seeing. And when he came back, Jesus was gone, but all the man's neighbors and the people who had passed by him on the street every day for years were just amazed. They're like, how did this happen? We, we've got to tell somebody about this. All right, here's where we're going to pick up the story this week. Join me in verse 13. It says that they, that is, all the neighbors in the community, brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Notice he's not blind anymore. Now, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees asked him again how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. This is, this is pretty interesting to me. Do you, do you hear the repetition that's going on in these verses? 
This is helpful for us because we took a break between verses 12 and 13. But John, when he was writing his gospel, never would have expected us to stop the story in verse 12 and then pick it up in verse 13. Like, it's pretty easy for us to see these verses as like, oh, this is like previously in John chapter 9. This is kind of a nice recap before the next episode. But that's not actually what's going on here. John is repeating key details of the story for a different reason. Do you see the repetition? We have four verses here, and four times John is telling us, hey, this guy used to be blind, but now he can see. He used to be blind, and now he can see. He had his eyes opened. How did you receive your sight? I went and washed, and I see. He's saying this over and over again. He was blind, now he sees. He was blind, now he sees. He's not blind anymore. He was blind, now he sees. But the blindness isn't gone from the story. Do you see who John pits the healed man up against? In verse 13, this group called the Pharisees, this is the the religious leaders in Jerusalem who up to this point in John's gospel have mostly been opposed to Jesus and to his ministry. John is, is doing this thing in verse 13, not just to recap the story, but to tell us what to expect as we continue on in the story. John is saying, look, here's a blind man who's not blind anymore and the Pharisees. And one of these people can see, and the other one can't. Okay? John is kind of, kind of setting our expectations for how we should read the rest of the story. There's blindness, and then there's blindness. The Pharisees aren't suffering from the same physical blindness that the man did earlier in John chapter 9. And in fact, we might have read the first part of the story, the first part of John 9 last week, and thought, oh, this is all about physical blindness, physical healing. This is this man's story. In these four verses here, John is inviting us to consider, actually, this whole story is about a different kind of blindness. It's about a spiritual blindness of the Pharisees. There's a tricky thing about spiritual blindness, though is that it doesn't always present itself like physical blindness does. It's not always immediately evident, right? Like if someone is physically blind, they're going to know it pretty quickly, yes? It's hard to avoid that reality. On the other hand, sometimes the most spiritually blind people are the ones who are most convinced that they have the clearest sight of anyone. They're blind to their own blindness, It makes it tricky to to be able to to identify, well, what does it even mean to be spiritually blind? I'd like to invite you, as we go through the rest of John chapter 9, to be looking out for the markers of spiritual blindness. What, What are the ways that we can identify spiritual blindness in our own hearts or in the hearts of other people around us? I think if we pay close attention, we see at least three. I'll tell you about three. Tell me if I missed any after service. We see the first one in verses 16 to 17. Join me there. It says that some of the Pharisees said, this man, referring to Jesus, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was division among them. So so they can't agree about who Jesus is or, or what he's like. So they turn and they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? 
And the man said, he's a prophet. Okay, so right here off the bat, we should see the spiritual blindness of the Pharisees. Here are, here are the leaders of the community, the most educated, the most well-read. Uh, they had the most scripture memorized. They were the ones on highest alert for the coming Messiah. And when the Messiah comes, they can't agree on who he is, and so they turn to a man who up until like an hour ago has been blind. And they're like, you tell us. We don't know. We can't see the reality of the situation. Like there's, a, there's an irony going on here when they ask this newly seeing man to, to tell them what's going on. We see part of the reason for their blindness up in verse 16. Some of the Pharisees said, this man isn't from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. Now, that, that might not hit the same way for us as it would have for them. If, if this is true, this is a very serious allegation. If this is true, if Jesus does not keep the Sabbath commandment, like that, that's one of the big ten. That's one of the ten commandments. That makes Jesus a sinner, and it makes everything that he said and taught completely invalid. If this is true, this is a big deal. It would disqualify Jesus from being a Messiah. What's interesting is that this is not the first time this accusation has come up. Do y'all remember back in chapter 5? I know that we were there like a few months ago. But that was the last time Jesus healed a man in Jerusalem. And they made the same accusation. He healed a man who had been lame for for like 30 plus years. And the man got up and and carried off his mat. And the Pharisees came around and they said, Hey, why are you breaking the Sabbath? All right, I'm not going to talk about that story because we talked about it already. The allegation was baseless back then. And it's baseless again now. They're just kind of replaying their their greatest hits. See, Jesus is not violating God's law when he heals on the Sabbath. Rather, he's violating the Pharisees' rules, which they've stacked on top of God's law. That's what's going on here. The Pharisees, they heard the law, like, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. You should not do any work on the Sabbath for God rested on the seventh day and he brought you out of Egypt out of slavery so that you don't have to be enslaved so you should rest so they they heard this law and they're like all right what does it mean to work and I don't know what these people's Enneagram numbers were but they decided that the best thing to do was to come up with a an itemized list 39 categories of all the different ways work can look And they decided that if anybody does any of these things on the Sabbath, that's what God meant by you shouldn't do any work on the Sabbath. It's kind of crazy to hear it like that. Uh, The the specific rule that they understand Jesus to be breaking here is actually a rule about kneading, like kneading bread or, or kneading mud together to be turned into bricks. The fact that Jesus spat on the ground and did this with his finger, they're like, ah, he's breaking the Sabbath. Somebody get him. Right? It's like totally missing the heart of the law, but that doesn't matter because he's breaking the tiniest little rule that these Pharisees have come up with. The rules were meant to help people live righteous lives, but instead they got too focused on the rules and they lost sight of what true righteousness is. This is the first marker of spiritual blindness. When someone is spiritually blind, they confuse rule-keeping with righteous living. When someone is spiritually blind, they confuse rule-keeping 
with righteous living. Y'all know this is true if you have social media accounts, right? Like, this is the kind of blindness du jour in the digital, digital world, right? We, we, we have all these cultural rules, and if you keep them, if you say the right things, if you are part of the right crowd, or at least signal that you are based on your profile picture, if you express the right amount of outrage at the right things at the right time, then you followed all the culturally accepted rules and you're in. But if you don't do any of those things, well, you know, it doesn't really matter Like if you're doing them in your life. But if you don't do them on your social media, how are we supposed to know where you stand? Just, just follow the rules and we'll be good. Right? It's easy to, to say that and think like that happens out there in the world. Man, that's happening in the church right now. It's happening all the time. I see, I see Christians canceling other Christians, engaging in heated arguments, not like, you know, well-intentioned, reasonable debates, which probably isn't best for social media anyways, but, but heated arguments, like canceling each other because you didn't say enough or you said too much or you didn't say it the right way, so now we have to, like, break fellowship with one another. It's even happening among, like, well-established, well-known, well-respected church leaders in our country right now. Uh, I don't know if y'all have, have seen any of the, the Twitter beef surrounding Tim Keller. I won't, I won't talk about this for very long. Tim Keller's not getting in like, any Twitter beef with anybody, but everybody else has Twitter beef with Tim Keller. And, and if you don't know who Tim Keller is, he's a pastor from Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, a, a wonderful teacher, just a an example of a gospel-centered life and ministry. It's not perfect. Don't agree with him on everything. But there have been a couple times recently where he's made statements, pretty broad statements, about the church's response to the outcry at the overturning of Roe v. Wade or to uh, racial tensions in America. And he's made just kind of like general statements. And other church leaders, like famous pastors with Thousands of followers have jumped to like canceling Tim Keller, calling him a heretic or a false teacher or worse, woke. Like, like it's, it's crazy to me that, that these pastors and leaders who genuinely want people to follow Jesus are spending all their time and energy like attacking this other pastor who wants people to follow Jesus. What it, what it seems to come down to isn't that they're afraid he's, he's you know, corrupting the gospel or something like that. What it, what it seems to come down to is, is that he's broken the rules of how to talk like a conservative evangelical Christian in a public space. Not, not like abandon the gospel, but just like not using the right language that we've already approved. So therefore, you shouldn't listen to him. Right? And I know this because I've read the responses to the comments, and rather than engaging, they just resort to name-calling. Right? Here's the point. We can't confuse culturally dictated rule-keeping that, that can change from season to season or region to region for gospel-centered, righteous living. I've seen this happen, not even just on social media, in, in a local church, uh, the church we were at in California, where I used to be a youth pastor. I think it was Christmas Eve. I had a, a Bible that was even floppier than this one. 
uh, I had just gotten it as a gift, and I handed it to our associate pastor's son so he could, like, I, I don't know if he wanted to look at something or, or just put it on a chair or something. I handed it to him. He was, like, four years old, and it was so floppy, he dropped the Bible. It was brand new. It's a nice Bible. It was a gift. I was like, oh, okay, let's, let's help clean it up. And one of the, the older ladies in the church who had been there for a long time, came over and just laid into this four-year-old kid. That is not how you treat the Word of God. I'm like, how are you treating the Word of God? (laughs) Like, forget the physical thing. Like, what's going on in here? How are you treating the Word of God? She had replaced rule-keeping for righteous living. It's easy to do. It just reveals spiritual blindness at work in our, in our hearts. What are the other markers of spiritual blindness that we see? Well, we read on in, in verses 18 to 25. It says that the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight. So now they're throwing out his whole story. They're like, the whole thing is a conspiracy theory. It's all a lie. So they called the parents of the man who had received his sight. And they asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son. Good job, parents. Proud of you for that. And we know that he was born blind. But how we now see is we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. Now this is interesting. I'll just pause Right there. The, the Pharisees decide this man's story can't be believed, so, so they invite in his parents, and they're like, yep, that's for sure our son. Yep, definitely has been blind his whole life. Now we can see. He's old enough, why don't you go ask him? And as I was reading through this, I was wrestling, like, do they really not know what happened? Like, the whole community knows what happened. The whole group of people brought this man to the Pharisees, Clearly, they know enough to know that he can see now, so they must have heard at least some part of the story. And then I read verse 22, and I thought, oh, John is telling us what's going on. John is whispering in our ear in verse 22, giving us the real reason why they don't say anything about Jesus to the Pharisees. He says, his parents said all this, said that they didn't know what was going on, because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. That doesn't just mean like they got kicked out of a building. That means they would have gotten excommunicated from their religious community, from their whole community of faith. One uh, commentator that I was reading said that if you were put out of your synagogue, you'd probably be better off leaving the area altogether because your life there was basically over. There was no future for you. So this is like high stakes. They, they are at risk of losing all their relationships, if they're business owners, all their business, all their friendships, everything. Why? Because they were afraid of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were using fear to influence people. Here we see the, the second marker of spiritual blindness. When someone is spiritually blind... They influence by fear instead of faith. We influence by fear instead of faith. This is, this is a familiar one to us, yes? If you don't know that people can lead and influence others by fear instead of faith, you have not been paying attention for the last two and a half years. 
right? And two and a half years is, is actually a pretty limited scope. You haven't been paying attention for a lot longer than that in the American political scene if you don't know that fear can be used instead of faith to influence and manipulate people. Over the course of the pandemic, I've read articles in major newspapers about how the only way we're ever going to get out of this thing is if we embrace the politics of fear and shame to manipulate people into making one decision over another. I, literally, I read that article in the New York Times like a few months ago. We just got to do it. We just got to jump in to fear and shame, and then people will do what we want them to do. People literally calling on politicians to abuse their positions of trusted leadership to scare a nation into making one decision over another. But what's crazy to me is that then I see responses that call out, hey, that's just a fear tactic. You can't do that to us. And then they turn around and they use like the opposite fear tactic. It's almost like on one side, like if not everyone gets a vaccine, everyone's going to die. And then the other side's like, that's a fear tactic. That's not true. If you get a vaccine, everyone's going to die. And it's like, well, why can't we just not use fear? Can we just calm down a little bit? All of us are capable of this. It's not just people in positions of, of obvious power. We all have spheres of influence. Those, those areas, those relationships in our lives where we're either able to, to use our influence to encourage people or to influence them out of faith or to abuse our influence and, and do so out of fear. It seems to me that that oftentimes when people are influencing out of fear rather than faith, that never starts as the intention. Rather, the, the decision to, to influence out of, out of fear or to scare other people into behaving one way or another always starts with an internal fear first. These Pharisees are terrified at what Jesus is going to do to the Jewish religious system. They don't have eyes to see that he is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. And if he's anybody else, that would be terrifying. Because they don't think he's the Messiah, they're scared of what Jesus is going to do. They're scared that Jesus might actually be leading people away from God instead of toward God. And so out of their own fear, they start to manipulate others through fear. Think about your own life and your, your spheres of influence. You could think about the areas where you live and work and learn and play. You could think in those categories if it's helpful to you. Are there any ways in which your influence in those spheres is rooted more in a fear that you have rather than faith? Let's, let's give it some specifics. Maybe it'll help it land. Do your children either behave or misbehave more because they're scared or more because they trust that you have their best intention in mind? They, they trust that you love them and God loves them. It, what motivates behavior? Do your coworkers, or better yet, the people that you supervise at work walk on eggshells around you because they never know when you're going to blow up? Or... Or are they able to come to you with confidence with any problem, knowing that, that you have their best intention in mind or their best, best end in mind and, and you want to help them? 
You have the best intentions for them. Do your neighbors trust you enough to ask for help when they have a problem, or do they go out of their way to avoid talking to you? Admittedly, that might be more on them than on you, okay? Like, everybody's got to bring something to the table, but any of these scenarios ought to be an opportunity for us to pause and examine ourselves, right? Is my influence rooted in my faith that God is sovereign, that he loves me, and that he has already given me everything I need to do what he's calling me to? Or is your influence more rooted in a fear that maybe God's not as powerful as I thought? Maybe God's not as good as I thought? Maybe God hasn't prepared all this before the foundations of the world for me to live into? Any time that we lead or influence from fear rather than faith, it's always a sign of spiritual blindness. We see another marker of spiritual blindness in verses 26 to 34. It says that they said to him, so now the Pharisees have called the, the formerly blind man back in, and they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've already told you, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Like he's getting sassy with the Pharisees. And on the one hand, I love it, but I, as I was thinking through my sermon today, I feel like I've just got to tell some, somebody needs this. Sass is probably not the best way to get your point across to somebody who's difficult in your life. Like, I don't know, that's not in my sermon. I'm just going to throw it out there. Somebody needs to hear that, I think, and it might be me. Like, sass is not the way when people are being difficult, usually, to get your point across. But back to the text. He's like, why do you want to hear me recount? I've already told you. What, you want to become his disciples now? This doesn't go over well. (laughs) The Pharisees respond. It says they reviled him, saying, no, 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 you're his disciples. We're disciples of Moses. Do do you see them stepping onto their soapbox, putting their shoulders back, raising themselves up a little higher so they can stand above this man and look down on him? No, you're his disciple. We're disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he's from. Uh, What are they doing? By positioning themselves as disciples of Moses, they're saying like, we're the real followers of God. Like, we know Moses heard from God. Now we heard from Moses. So you better get in line behind us if you want to really follow God. Like, we're the ones doing it right. We don't even know where this Jesus has come from, right? They're they're calling into question his identity and his origins. They're like, we don't even know this guy. We know Moses, What follows is just like an awesome Bible smackdown from the man who used to be blind. Like, look with me at verse, uh, starting in verse 30. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. He's still being sassy. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. Please explain that to me. How could that possibly have happened? We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Do you see the subtle shift that this man has made? The Pharisees said, we listen to Moses because Moses listened to God. The man who used to be blind says, I listen to Jesus because God listens to Jesus. 
Right? He, he's, he's flipped it on his head, and he's used that to, to say, look, if God is listening to the request of this one, he can't be a sinner. Besides, he says, when have you ever heard of someone being born blind and then seeing? Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. So the man says, plus, I was beyond hope. Nobody with my condition has ever been able to see. It would have been a complete act of God to have me see anything. For me to be healed has to have come from God. No false teacher, false prophet ever could have brought this about. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. All right, this is like so scripturally based and eloquent, this is exactly the kind of argument that should have convinced the Pharisees. Like, you could have swapped out who was speaking in each part. You could have told me that a Pharisee put this whole eloquent speech together, and I would have believed you, because that's exactly the kind of things Pharisees did every day. They came up with arguments like this based in the scriptures and just kind of hashed it out in public forums. There were different schools of thought that were constantly going back and forth, refining each other, sharpening each other, hopefully leading each other into deeper and deeper understandings of God. And now here comes this man who an hour ago was blind doing the same thing. They ought to hear him. They ought to see his point. But instead they answered him, You were born in utter sin, and you would teach us? So they cast him out. They excommunicate him from the temple. Why? Because he reasoned with them from the scriptures, and he did it better than they were able to handle. Like, you were born blind. You must have been born in a different kind of sin than we were. So so don't even try to teach us. Go ahead and move along. Get out of here. Here's the third marker of spiritual blindness. When someone is spiritually blind, they are unteachable and proud. When someone is spiritually blind, they are unteachable and proud. It seems to me that this is uh, really easy to fall into for really new Christians and for really long-tenured Christians. I'm sure everyone along the spectrum can, can... can trip over this hurdle at some point or another. But it seems to me that, that the most likely candidates to, to experience this kind of spiritual blindness are, are those who have only been walking with Jesus for a little while, who think because they've got the basics down that they know everything. Just want to say in love, you don't. Or the people who have been walking with Jesus for a really long time who think that because they've gone way beyond the basics, they know everything. I just want to say in love, you don't. But either either one of these people are are susceptible, it, it seems to me, to fall into this category of unteachable and proud. How does this show up in our in our lives? Anybody ever had the experience of being like convicted of some sin by somebody who just had no business convicting you of some sin, like your kids? <laughs> like you're five years old. What? Like what? What are you telling me about my sin? Ooh, unteachable. 
Or, or maybe uh, a non-Christian neighbor uh, observing or asking about an inconsistency between what you profess and how you act. How does that go over? Sometimes we're, we're apt to believe the lie that like, if we don't do things perfectly, we must be spiritually blind somehow. Like, if we, if we ever fail to live up to our, you know, expressed beliefs, then, oh, we're just total failures. No, no, you're not. You're just human. Okay, that, that's all that means. However, when that is pointed out, when, when that inconsistency, that gospel gap gets revealed to you, how you respond probably one of the quickest ways to see your own spiritual state. So here in in John chapter 9, we see this condition of spiritual blindness. We see its, its symptoms, some of the ways that we can identify it. But what we don't see here in John chapter 9 is, what's the big deal? Like, like what's the ultimate end? What's the result of spiritual blindness? In our day, there's, there's this kind of idea that faith can exist in a bubble separate from the rest of life. And whether you are spiritually blind or whether you have spiritual beliefs or whatever you feel about God doesn't really affect the rest of your life. If we just zoom out, though, and consider the whole counsel of Scripture, the Bible has something to say about that. Actually, Paul, in Ephesians chapter 4, shows us the end result of spiritual blindness if someone continues walking in it. We'll put these verses up here, Ephesians 4, 17 through 19. Paul says, I say this and I testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. That's his word for spiritual blindness. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. There's a lot of old language in there, a lot of religious language in there. Let me summarize it for you. Paul is telling us that the end result of spiritual blindness is total destruction. He's saying, no, 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 your your faith or the absence of faith doesn't get to exist in a vacuum or in a bubble outside the rest of life. Actually, Spiritual blindness always results in total destruction. In these verses, we can see intellectual destruction. They're they're darkened in their understanding. There's spiritual destruction. They're alienated from the life of God. There's emotional destruction. There's hardness of heart. There's relational destruction as they give themselves up to sensuality rather than God's intended design for relationships. There's moral destruction. They're greedy to practice every single kind of impurity they possibly can. This is a picture of total and complete destruction because of spiritual blindness. And it seems to me that Paul's is a voice that we really ought to listen carefully to. See, Paul was a Pharisee, not much different from those in John chapter 9. And we know from the book of Acts that at one point in his life, he not only opposed Jesus and his followers, he was attacking and killing, persecuting the followers of Jesus. 
He was darkened in his understanding and alienated from God, hurtling headlong toward his own destruction even as he sought to destroy the early Christian movement. And yet here he is, healed, brought to to full sight, just like our blind man from John chapter 9. It begs the question, what do we need in order to be healed from spiritual blindness? If the blind man can be healed, and if Paul can be healed, then there ought to be hope for us. But what do we need to experience that kind of healing? Let's go back to John 9, and and we'll finish out the chapter. Jesus heard that the Pharisees had cast the man out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He's referring to himself. He answered, Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who do see may become blind. Now some of the Pharisees were standing near, and they heard him say these things. And and they said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. What do we need to be healed of areas of spiritual blindness? It seems to me that the the answer is, is in the difference between the healed man and the Pharisees. What do they do when when confronted with their blindness? Well, well, the healed man knew he was blind. And he recognized his condition readily. The Pharisees were blind to their own blindness, and they weren't willing to hear about their condition. The the healed man received the sight of Jesus as a gift. The Pharisees said, no, 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 we can open our own eyes. We don't need anyone else to to give us the gift of sight. The, The healed man responded in worship, falling at Jesus' feet, saying, I believe the Pharisees reject Jesus outright. What do we need to be healed of spiritual blindness? We've got to recognize our blindness, to receive the sight from Jesus, and to respond in worship. You can see that in the differences between these two responses. You can even see it if you look back at at Paul's own story. Paul was spiritually blind, alienated from the life of God, persecuting the church. He was so blind spiritually that Jesus had to strike him blind physically for him to finally realize just how blind he was. He finally had to come to a place of admitting his blindness, receiving a healing that he could not earn himself, and then Paul's whole life from that point on was one long response of worship to the one who had made the blind man see. The Pharisees say what? Are we blind too? I think Jesus is saying, man, you don't know how blind you are. When he says, if you were blind, you would have no guilt, I think what he's saying is, if you would just admit your blindness, there would be forgiveness for you. There would be healing for you. If you would only recognize how broken you are, I could make you whole again. But because you insist that your vision is 2020, I'm going to go ahead and hold you to that standard. And it's not going to go well for you. 
Friends, here, here, here's the point. Here's the heart of the matter. When you see Jesus, you see everything differently. If, if you don't see Jesus, if, if you're first darkened in, in your sight toward Jesus, none of the rest of the world is going to make sense. You can try to make sense of the rest of the world, but things just aren't going to fall into place. But when you see Jesus, you start to see everything differently. Friends, the, the Gospel tells us that all of us are born blind. Not, not, not some of us in utter sin and others in a little bit of sin, but like all of us, born sinners, spiritually blind to the truth of God. But it also teaches us that even in our blindness, God still sees. That He sees us and He knows us. And He came to save us. That the light of the world, Jesus, put on flesh and lived among us as one of us. He entered into human history in order to open our eyes and show us the light. Jesus lived without sin, untainted by spiritual blindness. And then he healed the physically blind in order to show us that he can also heal the spiritually blind if only we would let him. And then he went to suffer on the cross in our place and for our sin. And the Bible says that when Jesus hung on the cross, the world went dark. Everybody was blind because they couldn't see Jesus. The light of the world had been smothered entered into the brutal blindness and darkness of death. On the cross, Jesus closed his eyes in death. But we know that on the third day, Jesus' eyes were open, and he walked out of the grave, leaving sin, suffering, death, and blindness all behind him in the tomb, because he had emerged victorious. And now, Jesus sends his Holy Spirit to open our eyes. To open our eyes first to our blindness and then to open our eyes to Him and to see everything differently. That we might be brought out of darkness and live into His marvelous light. He he sends His Spirit so that we could recognize our blindness. So that we could receive the gift of sight from Jesus. And so that we could live differently. Live a, a redeemed life. A resurrection life. A life that's marked more by righteousness than rules. More by faith instead of fear. And more by humbly following and learning rather than pridefully resisting and rejecting. Friends, do you see Him? When you do, everything changes.